Welcome back to Off-Campus History. This is the podcast where we talk about public representations of history. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the video game Hearts of Iron 4. Hearts of Iron 4 is an intricately detailed World War II strategy game in which players can take control of virtually any country or major colony. For our episode today, we're specifically focusing on how the game represents the history of South and Southeast Asia during this period. My guest and I have both done playthroughs of the game as the British Raj, a colony that included present-day India, Pakistan, Myanmar, and Bangladesh, among other places. The 1930s saw South and Southeast Asia in a moment of flux, with the European colonial states in British India, including Burma, British Malaya and Singapore, French Indochina, and the Netherlands East Indies, creaking under the weight of labor unrest, ethnic conflict, the Great Depression, and rising Japanese and German economic competition. While British India remained a primarily agrarian country with some industrial investment, European-ruled Southeast Asia depended primarily on the export of rubber, tin, and oil. Most accounts of the Pacific War begin with Japan's simultaneous assault on the British Empire in Hong Kong and Malaya, and the USA in Hawaii and the Philippines, but Japan had been at war with China since 1937. By 1941, lacking oil and rubber imports from Britain, France, the Netherlands, and the U.S., Japanese military planners saw a quick and devastating strike against the Allied empires in Southeast Asia as the only way to sustain their empire. As part of their preparation for the assault, the Japanese Navy engaged with anti-colonial groups and individuals across the region. In late 1941 to early 1942, Japan struck decisively across the region, striking at European colonial military outposts and making inroads into their territorial holdings throughout the region. At the same time, the Japanese Empire was never able to establish itself as an empire with the consent of the governed, and they met deep resistance from the civil societies of the region and from guerrilla armies of marginalized ethnic groups and communists. Eventually, Japan became overextended in the region, and they were forced to retreat from Southeast Asia in the middle of 1945. While also fighting to repel Japan, British India was undergoing tumultuous events on the home front. The nation was devastated by the Bengal famine in 1943, an event which led to the deaths of millions of people. A movement for Indian independence was also gaining strength, marked by the launch of the Quit India movement in 1942. This movement culminated in Indian independence within a few years of the end of World War II. To discuss how Hearts of Iron IV represents all of this history, I'm joined by my friend Sid Schreeder. Sid is a fellow PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, whose research focuses on the economic history of British imperialism in South Asia during the 1930s and 40s. I'm excited to share this conversation with you today. Let's get into it. All right, welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm very excited to be joined today by a friend of mine from my very own PhD program, Sid Schreeder. Welcome to the show, Sid. Hi, Lewis. It's great to be here. I'm so excited about this project, by the way. I didn't say that before in our little chat, but it is really fascinating and exciting thing that you're doing here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to do it. It's, it's going to be some, some fun to start. I'm recording this before I release the first episode, so it's going to be fun when we start releasing the episodes and... And, right. Uh, people yeah. are listening, but so can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your research focuses on? Yeah. So um, I'm a third-year PhD at the University of Toronto with Lewis, mm-hmm. and 
I did my BA and my MA in, in history and Asian studies at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, focusing on caste and capitalism in South Asia. And my PhD research is on um, broadly the rubber economy of the Bay of Bengal during the um, Great Depression and Second World War. Uh, and I focus on the flows and circulations of labor, capital, and, and ideas about nationhood, self-determination, um, economic development, and stuff like that. Awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting. So today for the podcast, we're going to be talking about the video game Hearts of Iron 4. And in particular, played as the British Raj, I played with the Together for Victory expansion, which is, among other things, features the British dominions and overseas holdings and that sort of thing. Essentially, the British Empire plays a bigger role. Um, and so, so can you tell us a bit about this game? What, what is Hearts of Iron 4? Hearts of Iron 4 is a, I think they call it like a real-time strategy game, um, something like that. It's done by um, Paradox Interactive. Mm -hmm. Or Paradox Entertainment, I'm not quite sure. Um, they also do other games like Europa Universalis, which is like a game about early modern Europe. It has the same dynamics and stuff. Um, they do one called, um, what is it called? They do one called Crusader Kings, which is really funny. It's like a medieval game, which is kind of kind of based in Europe, like royal families, stuff like that. But they did expand it. I think it's it covers basically the whole world. Mm. And there's something coming out called Victoria three or something that has to do with the Victorian age, of like high imperialism and science and stuff like that. And it's all based on, on something they call like the Clausewitz engine. It's their like artificial intelligence engine that kind of powers all the different countries interacting together and stuff like that. Um, I've been, I've been playing these games kind of, I don't, I'm not very good at them, but I play them, <laughs> I play them because they're fun. You know, if you're like a history buff kind of person, they're like a fun thing to go and like, play around with some country, like try and like do what happened in history or try and do something creative with it. So it can be a lot of fun. This might be, and I've played a lot of video games, this might be the most complicated video game I have oh, ever <laughs> played. It's so hard. And I, I once bought one of the other games in the, uh, by the same company. I think I bought Europa Universalis 4. And I tried to do the tutorial, and I was like several hours in and not getting it. And I was like, <laughs> you know what, this is this is too much for me, and I sort of dropped it. But uh, but I I pushed through for our podcast today and and finished a playthrough. It's it's like a it's it's very dependent on like heavy multitasking, like really following along, like many different channels of things happening. You constantly get peppered with little events and notifications and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's wild. I think you kind of have to be a Zoomer if you don't play something <laughs> like this. So Hearts of Iron 4, in particular, is focused on World War II. Right. It, I think the, the standard version, and you can play slightly different versions, but the standard version of the game begins a little bit before the war starts, I think in 1936, and yeah. you sort of play through until... I'm not actually sure when the game ends because, well, spoilers, my run ended pretty early, but... Uh, <laughs> I think you can kind of play, you know, a bit beyond the war and just yeah. kind of... The clock keeps going even though the game is kind of over. Right. And the game has 
a few major focuses, right? So you play as a, a country or colony, and the emphases are really sort of economic, right? Building up your, your economy, political in the sense of your relations with other countries. You can also play around with your own country's politics. And sort of the subject and master country kind of thing. Like there's different levels of autonomy that you can kind of progress through or regress through. Yeah. Um, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big part, especially of playing as the British Raj, right? Right, right. And, and in, I think it's it's very important in the whole Together for Victory DLC. Yeah. Because um, as any of the dominions, you could kind of break free and become kind of like a republic at some point. And if you're the UK, you can kind of enforce other countries back into different levels of colonial dependence and stuff. Oh, really? So that stuff is all very well built out too. It's it's, and it there are some we can maybe talk about it later. But there are yeah. some like ideas that go along with it that I think are quite creative. Right. Yeah. So the economy, the politics, and then of course war. Right. Eventually, war breaks out. It. The game doesn't sort of exactly always follow chronological history in the exact lining up of dates, but if you play with the, I forget the setting, but there's a setting where it sort of follows more or less real events. They may not happen right. at exactly the same time, but eventually war starts and it's largely the same players. And unless you're a neutral country, you have to participate in that. Um, right. So how did your playthrough go out of curiosity? So the first few times, awful, just horrible, because it is so complicated. You just keep, you get peppered with this stuff, like time mode. I mean, you know, it, it can be kind of dull in the beginning, especially as one of these. So we didn't, we didn't really mention, but there are like seven major countries, which kind of correspond with the major combatants in the war, like the UK, France, Germany, um, Italy, the US, Soviet Union. Um, China and Japan, right? And those countries have sort of the largest focus trees, or the sort of historical moments in in sort of planning, industrial planning, war planning kind of missions you can do along the way. Those have the the most well built out ones. But with these different DLCs, like Together for Victory, all the dominions, the the British dominions, like Canada, Australia, South Africa, the British Raj, they get a bit more sort of built up in the focuses. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other interesting DLC too, like uh, Waking the Tiger really builds out the Japan DLC. Mm. Um, but I think the game at its core was kind of like a European theater yeah. kind of game, like North Atlantic kind of game. And these new kind of DLC have kind of opened up the map a bit more. Um, I haven't played too many hours of the game, but yeah, so the first few playthroughs went really awfully just getting totally swamped uh by japan playing as the raj or playing as australia or whatever you just or china you just get swamped it's it's unless you get like a real hang of the, the mechanics <laughs> of it it's really built in like for japan to just run through and i also had an issue with getting my save game so i had never played through more than half the game until very recently oh no but then i think i kind of got the hang of it and you 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 can, on the easiest mode, for sure, you can kind of get the hang of, like, what kind of mechanics are going to happen. Like, you know, what happens if the the Axis run the tables in Africa? Like, how does that, what position does that put you in the UK and South Asia and Southeast Asia and stuff like that? It, it really, I'm, I'm really quite impressed, you know, by, by all the 
stuff that they did put into the game that hey, it makes it quite a challenging kind of experience. And, and that probably models what it was like, you know, to try and plan or follow along with the war, not be, actually being in it, of course. I mean, that is totally different from playing video games. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like my, my game went kind of the same way yours did, where essentially I spent the first few years of the game trying to build up the economy, and the war breaks out. I have some troops that I send to help out the British Empire in East Africa. That went very poorly, uh, <laughs> and so I, I retreated with whoever was left, uh, but then... Japan came through and took over all of my country. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I was basically, it's a weird game in that like after you lose, you can still keep hanging out and it's like maybe somebody will restore you to power. But at that point, I think that was about 1943. I just, I was done. And that's kind of what happens with places like Belgium or the Netherlands that very quickly become governments in exile in London um, with some rump state still in the colonies, like in the Congo and the Dutch East Indies that also very quickly fall, or in the case of the East Indies anyway. Um, so that that stuff is kind of modeled, you know, in, in an interesting way that, I, I think one of my friends told me that the Netherlands is just one of the worst countries to play as because you just, you turn into a government in exile like almost immediately and then, <laughs> You, all you could do is try and raise as many colonial troops as you can, which is w w a very difficult thing to do. And I think that's something that really does match what it was like to, um, you know, promote the war in the colonies or recruit troops in the colonies and so on. In in that sense, like, you know, and maybe we'll get to this later, but mm -hmm. the way that the, the game sort of builds in these structural difficulties for dominions and colonial states, I think is quite interesting. And it, it does match a lot of the historiography about the, the sort of limits of colonial rule in, in, in the, you know, European empires in the 20th century. Yeah. I, let's get into that then. So when I was playing through as the Raj, it felt very strange that I had this big country with a big population, but I felt pretty weak and underpowered because there's so little industry to produce weapons and ships and such. There's certain mechanics in the game that prevent your ability to recruit lots and lots of troops mm. because you don't have full control over your own government policies about the army and that sort of thing. So what were your thoughts on, on this from a historian's perspective? Yeah, I think they they really did a good job of um, you know I I you know I there's not really footnotes in the game, so you don't you can't quite see like where they're getting their stuff from. Sure, but they did a quite good job with um, modeling the the thinness of the colonial state. You know, even even with its sort of heavy authoritarianism, especially in places like India and the Dutch East Indies and Malaya and so on. The, the sort of limits of the state are quite apparent in the game. And there's many little things about how, like, you know, you have this, like, risk of famine in India, for example, mm -hmm. because the state is so corrupt and, like, you know, it's so inefficient and stuff like that. Uh, and, you, and you have other kinds of penalties, like 
one one which is kind of unclear is the the penalty about agrarian society being difficult to recruit from. Hmm. I think it goes both ways um, in terms of manpower, because in the early modern and the you know early, especially in the early modern era, a big ag- agrarian country is where you get the most numbers of troops, right? Like the Mughals could um, feature vast armies of over a million people, hmm. inclu- and then millions more of people sort of supporting the army. But then in the modern era, the game I think does you know, modeled that aspect of industrial society and proletarian armies by giving the sort of highly industrialized countries like the UK, the US, Soviet Union, Russia, Italy, France, um, just insane amounts of manpower, like which 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 matches kind of how how those wars played out. Um, but to get to the point about industry, I think this is like a very, you know, it's a very important point and it's it's well done in the game where um, these colonial societies have extremely like low number numbers of factories. Um, it, t- it takes them a long time to get construction undergoing. Um, it, though there are some sort of national focuses that you can do to get a few more sort of factories here and there. And those kind of match up. They, they're even named with similar sort of um, projects that did take place during the war, like the East India Railway project and stuff like that. But this, so... In, in South Asian history for a long time, there was this kind of branch of scholarship that was that sort of started in the 1870s with people like um, Dadabai Naroji, who's considered one of the fathers of the Indian independence movement. So this sort of branch of sco- economic scholarship that was really tied in with the independence movement as well, that targeted what they saw as a deindustrialization during the history of the British Empire in India between the 1750s and um, sort of um, like 19, you know, when they were writing, 1870 to 1947. There were many different reasons that they thought of, like, for example, the displacement of the local elite, which means just much less demand for fine craft goods, like fine muslins and things like that, that were being sort of replaced with um, different designs in, in Europe, especially with industrialization kicking off. Um, textiles being the big thing where India used to be, or South Asia used to be the workshop of the world when it came to textiles and um, South Asian textiles were used as currency in parts of East Africa and Southeast Asia. They were used to finance the slave trade in the Western Arabian Sea. So these are, this was like a sort of hub of manufacturing and industry, you know, up until the the late early modern period, the beginning of sort of what we consider the modern in the 18th century. And this was called sort of deindustrialization. And I think the game kind of matches that in you know, in sort of allocating you very few factories. During the early 20th century, you start to see some industrial activity in in South Asia with certain people starting to open up steel, sort of steel factories um, opening up, um, railway factories for, which originally railway railway components um, for the big railway investments in South Asia were all produced in the UK in, in a kind of protectionist kind of, way you know hmm. whereas this is this is a big debate in, in in imperial studies like you know people like niall ferguson like to bring up railways as like look how how europe developed the world you know the uk provided railways to like the western hemisphere to asia stuff like that but if you look into how that kind of investment worked um where in the us and uk investment in the railways was followed by investment in subsidiary industries like you know, just getting all the components together to put to put a railway together. In in the case of Asia and Africa, 
those components were still manufactured in the UK and and the and North America. So you don't get that boost, you know, that you get with um, railway heavy industry investments in um, Europe and the Western Hemisphere. But so um, the game gets all of that correct, and it does show how how little industrialization had taken place, even though there was a lot of interest in it. There was a moment in right before and right after World War One where a big part of the independence sort of energy or, you know, energy towards autonomy was directed towards Swadeshi, which means like producing in your own country. Hmm. Um, that kind of self-sufficiency was a big thing that sort of allied students with early industrialists were mainly interested in textile investment and in textile factories and so on. So right at the start of the game, 1936, India is not very industrialized. Um, and that kind of does match uh, what, you know, what, what the actual situation was. Right. That's interesting, especially, so the game has a mechanic called the national focus tree, right? Which is sort of, I guess, political objectives, you would say that the, the, the state you're playing as is focusing on and they, they vary. Sometimes they're sort of ideological, sometimes they're economic, that sort of thing. And it's a, it's a tree. It's sort of like if you, if people have played a game like Civilization, it's like a technology mm. tree, but it's not for technologies necessarily. And yeah, the annoying thing is it's got this tree. It's got technology trees as well. Yes. You know, so you just, you're just like, you have so many different trees you have to work through. I think it is like a level of complexity beyond the Civilization's games in that way. It is for sure. Yeah, it's very complicated. So the National Focus Tree and... Every country's is different, right? And it's supposed to be based on its history and sometimes sort of alternate history as well. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But if you're playing as the British Raj, I noticed that the branches of the tree that focus really on industrialization and building up the economy are very separate from the ones that are focused on independence uh, from Britain mm. or, or greater autonomy. Do you think that it sounds like this is not totally true in that there's some effort or there was some effort historically to create greater autonomy by creating greater economic independence. Is that correct? What do you, what do you think? Essentially my question right. is what do you think about this from a historian's perspective of sort of bisecting those trees? Right. You know, it, in the sense of like thinking about how industry is developed in, in a, in, especially in a colonial society and in South Asia, the game, it, it has a problem where it, it does try to separate out the political from the economic and separate out kind of these different things. But they do some clever little fixes here and there where, um, for example, to, to get the national focus clamped down on corruption, which allows you to escape the famine, or you do have to be like a dominion already. You have to advance way beyond where India was at the time. And, um, and similarly, if you want to do like, Strengthen th ties with British investors. Yeah, and that which is also one of the industry focuses. That ends up putting you behind in terms of autonomy because of the kinds of links that are generated, you know, between investors in the UK and the um, the British state and trying to protect those investments by limiting autonomy. So that kind of thing is is pretty clever. But on the other hand, it does get away from the sort of deep connections between the Indian independence movement and the drive to be self-sufficient in, right. in certain goods and services. And also, you know, for 
throughout this period, until you get to the war, textiles are really the big kind of industrial, industri industrially produced good in most of the world. Um, and that was really the, the locus of the fight between the early Indian industrialists and Lancashire and Manchester industrialists, which, you know, over tariff rates between like Manchester goods, Lancashire goods and um, Indian goods and stuff like that. So you, you don't really get the textile part of the story. And textiles are, I think, quite important because that's where these countries build up their industrial base and their um, sort of proletarian or, you know, factory worker base that then gets converted very quickly into sort of war production all over the world, not just in South Asia. So that, that part is kind of missing. And it that does that would actually trace more of the story of the connection between um, movements for autonomy in colonies and, and industry and things like that. And I think that's part of kind of the, the sort of modernist outlook of the game where yeah. it does try and separate out things like war from the economy from not not so much from the economy but war and politics and and thing and politics and the economy are kind of separate and the social is kind of absent not very well developed but yeah i hope that answered the question no i think it that was a good answer and it it does tie into another question i had right where so the economy in the game is very fixated on war production right you sort of you establish factories in different parts of your your region, your state, and you can't have civilian factories, but eventually you end up mostly using factories to produce like battleships and guns and planes and that kind of stuff. The game actually has no money in it, right? It, right. There's no there's no currency being exchanged. And all trade is actually done through this sort of strange factory mechanic, right? Where like you can't use one of your factories if you're importing something from another country. Right. What do you think about this choice as a way to represent economic history? It's kind of, it stuck out to me anyway, as a, as an oddity that it's a game where the economy is so important, but there's no money. Obviously there's no, there's not much in the way of a civilian economy of right. textiles or, or whatever else. Yeah. Right. What, right. what are your thoughts? It's, it's a very interesting choice. And I think it might've been a necessary choice just given with, how many, you know, as playing the game already, you play as kind of this authoritarian kind of master planner. Yeah. And you, I think you would just be totally inundated with choices, you know, if if they had the additional dimension of a money economy. Europa Universalis, which is another game that Paradox makes that has a very similar engine, a very similar kind of dynamic, does have money to it. And but it, and it functions kind of on the like gold standard. You accumulate gold as a country. And you can accumulate debt as well. So that that game does have that okay. um, sort of money economy. I think in this game it, it might have just been too complicated to get the to get money in there. Though I think you point out a very good, interesting problem where the the way that they do the civilian factory for resources trade is quite strange, and it makes it seem as though these resources like rubber, tin, aluminum, tungsten. Um, stuff like that. It makes it, it sort of abstracts them into um, sort of naturally given resources, mm. except for fuel oil, which you can go through the sort of technology tree and turn into a synthetic thing. Right. It does make them into sort of abstract natural goods. But all of those goods, if you think about them just a little bit, are extremely processed goods. You know, like it takes an insane amount of manpower and labor to 
to get rubber out of the ground, you know, to plant rubber trees in the States and um, extract it and process it and ship it and distribute it and stuff like that, store it. And um, same with steel, which is um, one of the key heavy industries at the time and playing what some would call the vanguard of, of um, the laboring population or the workers in, the, in every country. But, but you know, just uh, some of the more militant and organized workers, that part of the game is kind of missing. You can kind of clamp down on on communism or clamp down on fascism or slightly improve worker conditions for additional stability. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, workers are kind of absent from the game altogether. Yeah. And um, in if you read a book like uh, Forgotten Armies by... Tim Harper and Christopher Bailey, they give you a a totally different story of the Pacific theater, at least, where it is a story of a war won by um, laboring populations working on construction projects, on infrastructure, working in factories to produce armaments, um, things like that. So, you know, maybe this is another thing where adding this dynamic to the game really, really might drive it into like an unplayable kind of complexity. But it does it, you know, it gives you that kind of military history perspective where what workers are supposed to do just kind of happens because of morale or something. Yeah. You know, and whereas like the movements of troops are more strategic kind of planned activity. Yeah. Yeah. It it is a it is kind of disappointing because, you know, a lot of the hidden story of World War Two and and of all of most wars is the amount of labor that goes into a war machine. Yeah. Yeah, definitely workers, like, they don't really appear, except uh, I had a couple of factory bombings uh, right. related to... Right, this is with the, the Quit India movement. Right? Yes, yeah, that I, I sort of went down that part of the, the national tree. And uh, yeah, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. So let's talk about how the game represents the movement for Indian independence. What did you think of this part of the the mechanics of the game? You can't... You know, there's there's a couple of different branches where you can go down the track of essentially dominion status, right? Where the greater independence within the British Empire. There's right. also sort of a... Which, which eventually you can upgrade into full independence too. Oh, right. Okay. I uh, clearly did not go down that track. Um, I sort of got stalled partway through the, the track, obviously. <laughs> and um, there's, a, there's a separate track that is sort of the alternate history track where you ally with either the Soviet Union or Germany and receive mm. help from them right. to achieve independence from from Britain in order to like stage a, a revolution. What did you think of how the game represents this history? And what did you think of this sort of alternate history inclusion in the game? Yeah, it's a it's a that's a very interesting question. It's it's great that they included this, you know, as part of the game. And I think the major countries have a lot of a lot more sort of alternative history kind of built in. Like you can you can launch like a, a, a world revolution from the UK or turn Japan down, you know, a democratic like path as well. So there are all kinds of alternative history, especially built into the major countries. Hmm. You can, I was playing as Australia, and you can turn Australia into like a fascist country like, oh, <laughs> and wow. join the Axis and stuff. So they they do build in a lot of this stuff, and I think that's a big source of engagement in the game. It drives people to play these games. Um, there's a, a a famous mod that people talk about on Twitter all the time called Kaiserreich, where the the Reich wins the war, and then you play after that. Okay. Wow. So alternative history is like a big 
big element of the game and, and its popularity. Yeah. In this case, it runs into this problem where, which you know, a lot of game, these kinds of games would run into because they sort of put you in these focus trees, right? That have sort of mutually exclusive options here and there that kind of take away from how in, in history, everything happens at the same time. You know, you, you, you do have a British fascist movement, a British communist movement alongside sort of more mainstream politics. And in India, you did have an Indian national army, uh, a very organized communist party that was working, especially in, in certain areas amongst the, the rural poor and the, and the, and factory workers. And it all happened simultaneously with, the Indian National Congress's sort of mass movement politics hmm. for independence. I like how some of this stuff is set up in, in, in terms of the independence movement. For example, when world tension picks up a little bit, that's when you can sort of activate provincial elections, get the which which kind of models how the Indian India Reform Bill went through parliament in 1935. And so and that's how you get into sort of Indian politics gets sort of opened up in the game. Yeah. And where and then you can kind of choose between um, pushing for independence right away or going through with the with provincial elections and trying to do that kind of thing. What happens in, in, in history, of course, is everything happens altogether, you know? Right. And a lot of it is prompted by the war. So, for example, the Indian National Army doesn't doesn't exist without Japan. That's something that the game doesn't quite get together, hmm. is that this really is like, in, it's both a sort of, project of overseas Indians, especially in um, Southeast Asia, and the Japanese Navy, which was very interested in huh. cultivating these um, independence groups all over Southeast Asia. Interesting. So the Indian National Army doesn't really come into being without Japanese support in after the, the sort of conquest of Malaya and Singapore and, the, and, and sort of the conquest of Burma as well. So that's that's something interesting that the game doesn't quite capture very well. On the communist side, it's a little more complicated because the Indian Communist Party is sort of a revolutionary party throughout the 1930s, um, though their main activities are defending workers and union strikes and things like that. Though there there are some agricultural movements that are, that turn violent in the early in the late in the late 30s. But when when Germany invades the Soviet Union, the party executive of the Indian Communist Party decides to go with Britain. You know, it, it hmm. pushes recruitment efforts. It supports the Allied war effort in contrast with the Indian National Congress, which at the same time, especially after the fall of Singapore in 1942, launches the Quit India movement to try and push for full independence. So the game gets kind of mixed, mixed up in terms of, you know, which elements are supporting the war effort and which elements are opposing it at any given time. Right. And it's also a little, it's it's not quite accurate to portray Bose, Sebastian de Bose as a, as a fascist. I mean, he, de- he does cultivate those ties with Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, but his own politics are, are quite all over the place. For example, he leads the Congress socialist wing in, in the 1930s. So the, the game, you know, it, I could, I could see how it'd be very difficult to keep all of this straight. Of know, course. Yeah. Game. Like, you know, how, how are you going to have all that mix of stuff going on at the same time? It's really, it's it's hard enough for a historian to keep in, in track, <laughs> let alone like a, a video game. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I think one of the challenge of games in this, one of the challenges of games in this genre is also not 
representing history in a really teleological way, right? I think of a game like the Civilization series, which is one that I've played a bit more of, uh, maybe some of the listeners have as well, where history is often portrayed as these inevitable steps toward the modern world with little regard for these the fact that these steps were often human choices that could have been made differently. Hmm. And in a game like Civilization, right, almost every country sort of follows the same, like, technological and political developments through the ages. Right. Yeah. This game, I think, has a, a bit more of a focus on historical contingency and showing that things could have gone in a in a different direction. Right. Which is which is engaging. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think the game does a good job of that? Or do you think like when I was playing this, I wondered how realistic was it really that India would side with the Soviet Union or or Germany instead? Like, or is that just sort of like a, a an odd thing they've included that really had no chance of happening or like what I don't know what are your thoughts on on the way the game handles this sort of teleology and yeah it's a very interesting question and I think it it, it's quite difficult you know in terms of a game designer's perspective if you're going to do a game about World War II which is a sort of the height of modernity it's like it's a modern um, event that happens right like the only way to get out, you know, on the other side is to massively industrialize. Yeah. It it really does tie itself because war in this time is an industrial phenomenon. It it is very tied to that kind of teleology that goes with modernity and industrial society and so on. In a game like Europa Universalis, though, I'm a bit more skeptical because it does in that game you really do have to become a colon, a colonial empire to compete. You know, as you go on, hmm. so. That game, I think you could put a little bit more pressure on on paradox to sort of change the dynamics. In this one, it's a little complicated, especially on the in the side of like political economy. You know, how do you portray alternative possibilities in an industrial war that aren't stuck in the teleologies of industrialization, right? Yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with the social, which is a sort of absent field of human activity in the game. And, and, you know, and that ties into like controlling places that have been occupied, what, what's going on in a colonial society during a war, um, the effect of something like the fall of Singapore in 1942, which Singapore being like a locus of modernity in the world, like a place that saw itself as sort of the, the height of modern society, a place like that, including the, a very strict color bar that it had. Hmm. A place like that falling to an Asian power really did sort of hit hard at what was called in South Asia the izzat or the sort of nobility or pride of the of the white of, of white supremacy uh, and of the British Empire. So that really changed dynamics all over Southeast Asia and hmm. uh, in a permanent kind of way. It, it, imperialism was probably never possible after the fall of Singapore. Like it was decolonization was sort of built into the societies of the of, of Southeast Asia after 1942. So that kind of aspect of the game is kind of missing. And it and I think, you know, thinking a bit more about the social would be a way in which you really expand like all the different sort of alternative possibilities that happen um, in society. If you limit the choices that can be made in a society to what what are are laid out as sort of the modernist trajectory of politics or modernist trajectory of, of um, industrial development and war, 
you, you're going to end up with having modernist teleologies just all over the place. But hmm. I think the, t- the terrain of the social, where you think about like the role of shopkeepers and plantation workers in either keeping up the war effort in certain places or really putting a strain on supplies um, under Japanese control, for example, right. like that becomes a, a dynamic where it's not so much the sheer military power or industrial power of the allies that, you know, it's ultimately one of the most important things that turns the tide of the war in Southeast Asia, just the sheer amount of supplies that come through from the U.S. to, to the British and Australian and India. That, that is something that really turns the war. But if Japan was able to really hold on to these societies and cultivate them as, as, as real allies, then the war might have gone in a different way. You know, like something that Harper and Bailey really stress in Forgotten Armies is that the Japanese really never gained the consent of the government, even though they tried to set up these sort of pan-Asian kind of puppet or pan-Asian kind of rulers like in Indonesia, in setting up Indonesia as a concept. And in in Malaya and in Singapore and in um, Burma, they were always way too... They, they were also very interested in Japanese supremacy as a racial concept in sort of subordinating even even their own supporters like the Indian National Army under Bose, hmm. subordinating them to lesser roles in the war effort. This all ends up biting them, you know, in, in the sense that they never really build societies that can maintain an industrial war on their behalf. So that these kind of things are, are, are difficult to play with. And yeah. it's hard to see like how you know, how you can build in alternative histories. The sort of more goofy things that you can do, like, you know, try to launch a people's war in, in the British Raj or right. turn Australia into like a Axis power. You know, those things are fun and, and it gets at that like sort of counterfactual kind of alternative history thing that you see sometimes in the History Channel documentaries. Um, <laughs> you know, like where, they, where they're like, you know, if Johnson hadn't, you know, won this battle or whatever, like the whole thing goes all over the place like that, that kind of thing, like, you know, is that's, that's, I think that's more the model of alternative history that they're working with. Like what happens if Soviets ally with the Japanese instead of doing something else rather than, you know, what are the possibilities of the future that come out of a society itself? Hmm. I think that's something a bit more complicated to think about. I mean, so this actually, there's, I'm just thinking about like something that ties in with, this this kind of aspect of the social with the earlier question that you asked about money. Yeah. The Japanese, once they once they capture Malaya, which happens extremely quickly because of just how few divisions the the UK has there, how overpowered or you know how like underinvested the the British fleets actually were in in Southeast Asia and East Asia, the Japanese sort of run through Southeast Asia very quickly in 1941 1942. And but once they get in and, and take over Singapore, they quickly pursue a policy of sort of extreme authoritarianism, especially towards the Chinese populations, which they saw as a kind of fifth column that which in some sense the overseas Chinese were very important to financing the, the national government in China that had been the longer running Japanese enemy from nineteen thirty-one onwards. So they, they instituted things like the Sukqing massacres in Southeast Asia, where the Japanese military and local auxiliaries um, really went after 
the local Chinese population, um, mainly Cantonese population. And one of the first things they do in Malaya and Singapore is they force local Chinese merchants to pay, I think, a $50 million straits dollar indemnity right away to the Japanese state. Hmm. Something that was, was not common in sort of the practices of war at the time to, fo- to force a local population to just fork over that much money. And it really, it caused a lot of strife and a lot of difficulty for, for Chinese people in Southeast Asia. That kind of, those kind of, you know, moves by the Japanese state really make it difficult for, for them to set up a state with consent, you know? Hmm. And this follows into the money question a bit more where they try to institute a Japanese sort of military currency for Singapore and Southeast Asia hmm. that really doesn't take off the ground. Nobody really has any confidence in it. The allies are easily able to counterfeit it and just sort of drop money all over all over the place with, you know, through airplanes and stuff. Interesting. Yeah. So that it also points to how money is sort of tied into the social and tied into consent given to the state. But yeah, so this that aspect, you know, it it ties in this question of, of teleology, ties in this question of like the social. Yeah, it's something the game doesn't quite get. Like so for another aspect is like we never really get a sense of local resistance as a part of war efforts, you know? Like Yeah. The game sort of has a has a resistance mechanic when you occupy a, a territory, but as long as you put some troops in the territory it becomes irrelevant, right? Right, right. Which isn't quite how it turns out. So, for example, the Japanese invade Burma in 1941 through Siam with a large force of Burmese soldiers um, led by Aung San, who later becomes the independence leader. And they're called the Burma Independence Army. And originally, they come in with the Japanese and quickly overrun once, once there's a naval invasion of Rangoon as well quickly overrun Burma and force the British to retreat to sort of India proper or East India, to Assam and Nagaland. And so that's, a, that's one of the major victories that the Japanese have in the early part of the Pacific theater is this sort of rapid defeat of the British in Burma. And it happens because of the Burmese Independence Army, right? Hmm. Which is a, is a large body of Burmese who do have the consent of Burmese villagers who never really like bought into British rule, which was very thin. And only really British rule in Burma starts in 1824 in the coastline, but only really gets to the interior in, the 18, in 1884, 1885 with the third Anglo-Burmese war. Hmm. So the Burmese independence army is a very important part of the Pacific theater in the sense that it allows Japan to take over Burma. And in 1945, becomes one of the main reasons that Japan is kicked out of Burma hmm. when they when they turn when they switch sides and join the allies. Interesting. And that's totally absent from the game. You, there's no Burmese independence army national focus for Japan. There's no for example one of the key elements of resistance in Burma is the Karen, Kachin, Shan states, which are these sort of ethnic groups that are, that aren't Burmese that were in British Burma. And they were hotbeds of resistance against the Japanese because of ethnic conflict between Burmese Independence Army and these um, sort of groups. And they were sort of the spearhead of the British in, in Burma and who and they were able to supply them through sort of back channels in the mountains that connect you know, eastern Bengal and Burma. 
So that that element is kind of absent. The Malayan anti-Japanese army is absent. This is a sort of a mainly communist, mainly Chinese um, group that seizes some territory in the jungles of Malaya, the Malayan Peninsula, and does get some support from sort of British special operations throughout the war and is able to raid here and there and does play some role also in the eventual sort of liberation of Malaya from Jap- from Japan. That's also kind of absent. And there's no, you know, there's, you don't really have an Indian independence army sort of wing in the Japan national focus. Hmm. So that kind of aspect of like covert ops and, and resistance armies and independence armies is like not, not quite part of the game, even though it's one of the most fascinating parts of Southeast Asian history in this time. And, and really does form the basis of like decolonization later on. That's really interesting. And yeah, definitely not absent or, or definitely absent, I meant, is that the game really focuses on, I guess, things we would think of as big, right? Like right. sort of big armies, big production and things that are happening on a small scale. Although it sounds like some of this was even on a large scale, right? Some of this is not small, but but things that are sort of not the, the, the grandest of the grand are not really focuses of the game. Right. It could be a challenge of these sort of um, grand strategy games, I suppose. Coming back to representations of social history and sort of not, I guess we would say like the, not the sort of grand strategy history. One thing, because this is not just social history, it's also political economic history. But one thing that we had talked a little bit about in our chat before we started this podcast is how the game represents the Bengal famine and that it's kind of clunky. It just sort of basically pops up one day if you're playing as the British Raj out of nowhere and it hampers your manpower and your national stability a little bit and eventually it just sort of disappears one day. Can you talk a little bit about how this compares to the historical reality. It's obviously kind of a, a poor way to represent a famine. Right, right. In in the game, the famine is a sort of natural event. But they do make sure there's a little note about how India has a risk of famine because of corruption uh-huh. and poor management, which does match kind of the scholarship of famine in the 19th century um, in South Asia. There's its British commitment to sort of laissez-faire market in uh, in goods, the way that roads and, and, and railways are set up for export purposes and not for internal commerce, hmm. um, the level of taxation on the on peasants. These are all aspects that go into the famines in the 19th century. The Bengal famine is a very interesting and a, a tragic event that caused the the the, star, the deaths by starvation of, of 3 million people, starvation and disease of, of over 3 million people. There's a lot of scholarship on the famine and it goes in, in many different directions. An early view was that it was a product of uh, lack of preparation in terms of roads and bridges and, and infrastructure, corruption in, the, in local government and things like that. That's one view of, of the famine. But more prominently, more, more recent, more consensus has shifted on this. And it people now really focus on, on aspects like the the British state's continued focus on sort of laissez-faire solutions to food distribution, at least up till 1944, the unwillingness of Churchill's cabinet and Churchill specifically to redirect food from, 
you know, food flows from North America to Europe and redirect them to South Asia. You know, Churchill at this time thought that Indians were a traitorous people because they had started the Quit India movement. And he was really much more interested in sending that food to Greece, where a new front had opened up in, in the European theater. And if you read the, the, the diary of someone like Archibald Wavell, who was first the commander in chief of Southeast Asia and then the viceroy of India, he's absolutely flummoxed about how he just can't get any food aid into, into Bengal. Another another view that has come into sort of consensus is that the fall of Burma was an extremely, extremely important event that made the famine as bad as it was. Um, the famine does start because of a natural disaster. There was a cyclone in 1943, I think, that causes a very poor harvest because of flooding and so on. But, you know, in a country as large as, as British India, including Burma at the time, there's plenty of food to go around, you know, even during a famine. Famines are usually localized disasters or localized issues. Right. But when Burma falls in 1941-42, that takes away 15% of the rice supply of, of India, uh, of British India. And Bengal at this time is, is a, a province where everyone eats rice, sort of multiple meals a day. People are not really quite able to digest wheat as well as rice just because of, you know, cultural sort of preference. Mm-hmm. Losing that huge amount of rice imports was was devastating. But in addition to that, the British retreat from Burma involved the scuttling or the destruction of, of just a whole, you know, flotilla of little boats that people used to get around the river Delta in East Bengal, now Bangladesh. So like, for example, Chittagong province loses a lot of its transportation mechanism, its key transportation mechanisms. So it's not so much that these areas lacked the technology to send food around, but that they were scuttled on purpose to prevent sort of Japanese invasion, right? Mm-hmm. So these are all factors that are kind of missing in the game. The only, but but I do give the game some credit in that it it builds in this um, sort of idea from Amartya Sen about famine as a problem of a, of a lack of entitlement to food in that, which which was a consensus for a long time, though people are sort of pushing back on it now, here and there. An idea that a people who have self-determination will find a way to avoid famine, you know, in the modern era by redirecting food, you know, through interventions of the, of the state, where a colonial state has much less interest in intervening in that aggressive way, you know? Hmm. Um, they're more interested in different kinds of flows of, of food. For example, in Forgotten Armies, there's this, you know, tragic, ironic kind of story about how when American troops showed up in um, Bengal in 1943, 1944, they were horrified to see how British officials continued to dine, you know, with, you know, multiple lobster courses and stuff like that in clubs uh, in Calcutta while people were kind of dying in the street. So, and that, you know, that's something that also doesn't really quite come into play in the sort of political side of things where, the influx of American personnel really does change, really does influence the British state to sort of change its perspective on how to address this famine. They really get more interested and invested in food aid and food direction once, you know, American troops show up and start just distributing their own rations because they're so horrified by what's going on. Wow. So that that kind of thing does. And and the U.S. government does lean on the British state as well to sort of change its, its you know, its policy regarding the famine. 
in in any case, the famine sort of ends in 1944-1945 as food aid is finally kind of brought back. Harvests start to pick up again, even though the first sort of good harvest is mainly lost because of a lack of people to work the fields. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really tragic episode in um, South Asian history and the history of the British Raj. And the game, you know, it just doesn't get quite there. Yeah. I do appreciate that to, that it, it builds in that um, national focus where if you do achieve dominion status, which I finally did in this last round that I played, if you achieve dominion status in time, you can trigger that event um, after you've done all the sort of railway events and you can avoid the famine, which is like, oh. I think that does match. It does match like what, what India is able to do after independence, where with more autonomy over the state, over, over the market, the state is able to prevent sort of mass death and famines. So that's, that's you know, it's a bright line. They, they do have that built in. That's interesting. I didn't know that that was a, sort of a way out in the game. I, uh, yeah, I, it stood out to me, I think, that essentially it doesn't, the game doesn't show any sort of political choices being made or that could be made to prevent it if you're, other than, I guess, sort of greater greater independence, right? Right. It's interesting because I think, you know, if you kind of think about it counterfactually and you follow along with what the Viceroy is writing in his diaries, fascinating diary. I read this in, in my undergrad for some class. It's like a thousand pages of this Viceroy writing diaries in like the height of the Second World War, mm-hmm. fall of Burma, fall of Singapore, all of that's in there. He, you know, even under these same civilian officials, there might have been a different story if if there was more autonomy. But at the time, there was a kind of, you know, authoritarian state in South Asia with some limited elections here and there. Though after the Quit India movement, basically the entire Indian National Congress leadership was put in prison. There is this dynamic that's built into the game a little bit, and it's also in, in history where the Indian government's autonomy stops in a, in a very certain place, and that's the, the British cabinet. And in the war cabinet, those things are turned up even more where, you know, it is, it, it's the British cabinet that sets policy going down to colonies that aren't dominions. Like right. Australia, Canada, South Africa have some more leeway in terms of, you know, the decisions they can make during the war. And in the game, I think, interestingly, if you play with the Together for Victory package, if you play as one of those dominions, you can you can take all kinds of choices. Like you can say, in in for the Australia national focus tree, I find it it's kind of funny how they call it not another Gallipoli, and you can just hmm. stay out of the war or join the U.S. or oh wow, you know this is where you become fascist or communist or whatever. Like this is this not another Gallipoli sort of choice? And I think in South Africa, you can you can make some choices that trigger like a Boer civil war. Yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, but when I what I meant by these political choices is yeah, the the essentially there's no indication that Britain is making a political choice not to send aid, right? And and it was strange because Britain kept at least in my game, you can do lend lease agreements and so Britain kept sending me weapons. Right. But not not food, right? And I'm like, well, <laughs> See, that's that's how they get you in the game, too. I didn't realize this the first couple of playthroughs, but if you take a land lease, you're not getting to Dominion. Yes. Like, it cuts at your autonomy. Yeah. And the trick is to kind of be the one that gives the land lease so you can get some points there. It really is, like, you've got to do 
whatever you can to get into Dominion status before the famine kicks in. Right. Or you just you lose all your manpower. Your factories are, you know, they didn't work as well. Mm-hmm. Quit India movements happening at the same time if you've triggered it. And so you even lose factories during the famine. And that really puts you on a back foot for yeah. Burma and so on. But I did figure out, like, if you if you really target this Dominion status, like, one way to do it is to just throw, like, 20 divisions into Africa and, and like, lead the African war in a, mm-hmm. in a weird way. So I did this in my last playthrough. This is all on easy mode. Maybe it may not be possible on the harder modes, but I I managed to use one of my armies to sort of clear out the Italians from first from Libya and then from Ethiopia, mm-hmm. um, and that made the rest of the game so so much easier. Oh wow! Because like all the all the war effort I was contributing to boosted up my autonomy score. I got out. I got out of got out of colony status into dominion status um, by like 1941. That that doesn't happen in real life. Yeah. I got into got into just independence in like 1943. Wow. <laughs> like five years early. So if you if you play it just right, you you can kind of avoid all. Hmm. But it does involve you becoming like the major army in Africa. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I tried to fight in Africa. That it didn't go as well for me. So. Yeah, the first few times I just got wiped out like very quickly. Or one time I tried to send an expeditionary force, and all my my army just became British and never came back. Oh yeah, yeah. I think essentially so, expeditionary force means like you give the army away, right? right? In the game, yeah. Right. That does get into some of the fun, more fun kind of historical sort of war history aspects of the game, hmm. where um, you can get like a certain division, like the Red Eagle Division. Or Sikh regiments, or Gurkha regiments, or um, the Chindits kind of thing, national focus, which fall into major moments in the history of the war in the Middle East and in Burma, that where the Indian Army does sort of distinguish itself, the British Indian Army under 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 mainly white leadership, but then at a certain point, Indian officers start to become sort of more and more important. And and that's a, a very key thing, especially in Burma, where Indian officers stay committed to the British Indian Army instead of joining with Subhash Chandra Bose's Indian National Army. Hmm. There was a kind of moment where during the Bengal famine, when morale was very low, the izzat of the empire was pretty much lost, Quit India movement was happening, and Subhash Chandra Bose was pamphleting West Bengal, was broadcasting radio from Rangoon had organized all these very interesting brigades like the Rani of Jhansi Brigade, which was an all all woman brigade, hmm. and was really trying to win the sort of propaganda war. Um the Japanese plan here was it was kind of a crapshoot thing where it was like the army would invade Bengal from the northeast and hope to land troops, which I think happened to you and Yes. And happened did, to me yeah. as well, which totally caught me off by surprise. Yeah. But the plan was um was for Indians to rise up and throw out the empire hmm. with with the support of the Indian National Army. That just doesn't happen. And in fact, according to Harper and Bailey, Indian troops are some of the most vicious towards the Japanese and the Indian National Army once once the tide is turned in Burma in 1944. Interesting. So that that the game does capture a bit of that of uh, how the British Indian Army does become a, a key source of support for 
um, the Allies, especially in, in North Africa and in Southeast Asia. Interesting. So overall, compared to your own research and the scholarship you're familiar with, what would you say is the thing you think the game has done the best? And what do you think is the biggest thing that you, if you were the creator of the game, would like to change about it? You know, I think some of the things that the game does really well is how it how you interplay sort of autonomy and your contributions in the in the war front. Yeah. That's something that does match up with what happens in, in Indian society at the time or South Asian society, where it's this experience of war that really feeds into the desire for autonomy. At at a certain point in 1943 and 1944, the majority of people serving in the British Indian Army are serving on the on the implicit promise that India will be free in the near future or right after the war. Right. So this sort of connection between autonomy from sort of colonial status and contributions to the Allied effort are, I think, something that is pretty well done in the game and, and pretty interestingly done. Yeah. Though, you um, you know, it it's really hard to get, like, an actual Indian Air Force or an Indian Navy set up in this game. You just, you need so many factories to get that stuff done. Right. But I think that that is something that the game does quite well. And it, it is, it's nice to play like through these sort of historical timelines and things. And, you know, it, it, it is nice and it, it is fun to sort of pop up the Red red Eagle sort of national focus or the Chindits focus or the Gurkha focus. Where the game falls short, I think, is the is the social aspect. It really does reduce sort of resistance to like um, how many troops you put in a place or whether you have police or not. And resistance in, in, in the real war was a very different thing altogether. It really t- turns the tide in, in Italy and in Yugoslavia, for example. It's key in Burma where sort of a local anti-colonial army is the thing that first gives the Japanese... Um, the advantage and then takes it away later and sort of some of the aspects of uh, yeah and and uh, and also local resistance is what um, never allows the Japanese to fully establish the supply lines that they sought by invading Southeast Asia in the first place so that that kind of thing is is quite underdeveloped and it doesn't quite capture you know what really drives independence movements later on in the game for example um, if you're playing as the British Raj you can kind of hold on to Burma indefinitely if you've if you've sort of held off the Japanese, right? But in reality, it's it's the Burmese themselves who overthrow the the British and then the Japanese. You know, hmm. to a to a significant degree, it wouldn't be possible without ex- external support in either case. But to a significant degree, that that is something that happens. So I, w- I would I would like to see that aspect of the game, you know, more developed. And it's something that you kind of get in other games like Crusader Kings, where family ties of your like noblemen are something that is like extremely well developed. Oh right. Because it's a feudal society. That's absent in this game, which is a game about modern society. And and we all know that modern societies are places where the social is incredibly important. Mass politics is incredibly important to how history, you know, proceeds or or makes changes away from teleological kind of directions. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think, yeah, definitely, I would agree that the social history is a big, big missing piece of the game. 
I do like that the game, uh, I think better than a lot of strategy video games that are based on history, is good at sh- showing contingency to history, right? And, right? and at least for me, it was not knowing very much about the history of South Asia in this period. It was interesting for me to sort of see the different, like, I can go on Wikipedia and read what happened, but playing a game like this helps me understand a little bit of, like, what didn't but could have happened, right? Or or maybe think about, like, why I think something didn't happen. Right, yeah. It's overall a good game. I really like it. I think it does a lot of decent public history. Like, you know, most museums of the war that you go to really don't have much about South Asia, Southeast Asia. That's, that stuff is kind of absent. If you, yeah. for example, the big Pacific War Museums in there's one in Fredericksburg, but also the one in New Orleans. It's mainly about the 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 war, the naval war between the U.S. and Japan. Right, and that's why Harper and Bailey call their book "Forgotten Armies" because these are armies that sort of stay out of the the main story of of the Second World War, even though it involves you know millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people making really drastic changes in their lives to enable the allies to and the japanese to to make the progress or make the gains that they do get mm. so it it's very it's very cool to me that the game builds this stuff out builds out the china front in um, waking the tiger builds out the dominions like the british raj and together for victory i think that's like a it's a it's sort of positive step to where world war ii history usually is you know mm. yeah Sid, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and talking to me about this game. I had a good time playing it, and, and I've, I've learned a lot from you today as well. So this was, I think, a really great conversation. Do you have anything you want to plug to the listeners? Yeah, so thanks, Lewis, for having me on. It was, it was so much fun to talk to you about this. It was really fun to get the game and play it, too, and think about it in, like, in terms of public history and stuff. Yeah. Um, I think this is a great podcast that you've got going. Oh, thank you. And I hope it, I hope it keeps building, you know? I do have a Twitter. You can go on it. I, I'm forewarned. It's, uh, you know, not very, you know, historical. It's mostly just, you know, politics and stuff. But that's at S-I-D-S-R-I-D-H-A-R 94, Sid Schrader 94. But more importantly, visit pasttensejournal.com to have a look at our University of Toronto History Department graduate journal. The Past Tense Graduate Review of History has been going on, I think, since 2011. And this is an annual journal that we showcase uh, graduate students writing about history. A lot of it is public history oriented in the sense of we really like the essays that have the most sort of presentist like impact on like what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And we do have a very interesting paper about Japanese colonialism in Taiwan and, and how it inter- relates with photography and so on hmm. from, I think, two years ago or last year. Past Tense is also going to be launching an online kind of portal, Past Tense Online, where we really want to feature sort of shorter pieces by graduate students. So check out pasttensejournal.com and follow me on Twitter if you want. Awesome. Yeah, Past Tense puts out great stuff. And and I know the people working on it are really smart people as well. So (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Louis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. That's our show for today. Thanks to our guest, Sid Schreeder, for joining us, and thank you for listening to the show. 
For anyone looking to learn a little bit more about this topic, check out a book we mentioned in the episode, Forgotten Armies, The Fall of British Asia, 1941-1945, by Christopher Bailey and Tim Harper. Off-Campus History is available on all the major podcast apps, so follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcast's artwork was created by Neth Caria, and our music was made by Nella Ruiz. Follow the show on Instagram at instagram.com slash offcampushistory, and follow our Facebook page as well. You can also reach me at offcampushistory at gmail.com, and my personal Twitter account is at Lewis Reedwood. If you're a fellow historian and you're interested in being a guest on the show, I invite you to send me a message as I'm looking to line up guests for future episodes. Of course, I'd love to hear what others think of the show as well. I'm Lewis Reedwood, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. Thank you.